Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly. So now ladies and gentlemen, it is start time. Are you ready for start time? From WBEZ Chicago and PRX, this is Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. Singer and songwriter Sharon Van Etten is busier than ever. And she says taking a break from the road allowed opportunities to come knocking. As soon as I decided to be off the road and became available, other opportunities presented themselves. But, you know, if I was on tour, I would have had to say no to all of it. Sharon Van Etten joins us for an exclusive performance and interview. And we'll review Jamila Woods' new album. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and later in the show, we will review the new album by Jamila Woods, a brilliant young artist, activist, poet, rapper, musician from this vibrant Chicago scene, Greg. But first, we have an interview and a performance from Sharon Van Etten. Closing your eyes when you're reaching with hands Falling down flat when you don't understand Who I am Songwriter Sharon Van Etten's been a favorite of ours for a long time, Jim. Um, we had her in the show in 2012 after her third album, Tramp, came out, a brilliant record. Two years later, she released her fourth album, Are We There?, which we both loved. She seemed to be on a career ascent, nothing stopping her, uh, except herself. Uh, She went on hiatus for five years. She took a break from the music industry, did a bunch of other stuff. In January, she broke her silence with Remind Me Tomorrow, a masterpiece of a record, uh, more keyboard-heavy than anything she'd done previously, a new sound, a new approach, and a fresh set of songs uh, describing where her life is at right now. We recently had uh, Sharon and her band perform for us and some loyal listeners at Talia Hall here in Chicago. Even though Sharon wasn't making a lot of music over the last five years, we had a lot to talk about, because she sure has been busy. She enrolled in school to become a certified therapist, started acting in the Netflix show The OA, and she gave birth to her first child. As we began our interview, she explained that taking a step back from music was not an accident. Reliving all these songs that were about unhealthy relationships and having a broken heart and... Finding the support around me to move on, I realized that instead of taking the time to make another record and go on another tour and relive all those experiences, I should just take what I have learned and live for a minute so I have something more positive to write about. But... And I find this so inspiring. So with your degree now, are you you like a therapist? Are you able to do therapy? Because I have this problem. (laughs) Well, I'll be honest. I'm... I'm a long way from getting my degree. Okay. Um, I never got my undergrad, so I'm only a sophomore right now. And with all the other things going on in my life, I can only go part-time. Mm-hmm. So I've given myself to the age of 50 to get certified. <laughs> 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 I feel like by then, too, I'll have enough life experience to, to feel like I have something to offer. So you had just come off a record, Are, you, Are We There, in 2014. Even when the sun comes up, I'm in trouble. 
you were on the slow build. I mean, you were constantly selling more records and you're playing festivals and uh, your career was on the ascent. There had to be somebody telling you, Sharon, this is the worst idea to go back and study therapy <laughs> in the middle of this career that a lot of artists would love to be in the middle of. And you were ready to walk away from it. I mean, there had to be somebody that wanted to talk you out of it, right? I actually feel very lucky because everyone was so supportive. And I feel that I have built an amazing group of people around me that don't want to take advantage of my success. And they really just want me to be fulfilled as a person because I think I'll thrive more as an artist if I'm rested and if I'm happy and that nobody wants to exploit my depression or my bad luck. They just, they want me to express myself in the way that I want to express myself. People just want to see me happy. And I think most of my fans feel that way too. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think, I think people's, it's, it's been a five year break. I mean, uh, remind me tomorrow uh, just came out. Um, so this, you know, five year gap between, and obviously there was touring in between there and you did shows last year as well. People have this impression like you just sort of drop off the planet and you're doing nothing. You're sitting at home on the couch watching Netflix. Um, she was on Netflix. Which, yes, that's <laughs> yes. the point. You were really busy. It sounds like you threw yourself into a bunch of other stuff because you can't not stay busy in some way, it sounded like. Well, I feel as soon as I decided to be off the road and open up the idea of, okay, so how can I be creative in home? As soon as I became available, other opportunities presented themselves. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if I was on tour, I would have had to say no to all of it. And I think you make small decisions like that that open you up to those experiences, then more off-center opportunities present, where they presented themselves to me, and I feel very lucky. I know they're unique experiences, but if I had been on the road and kept doing what I had been doing, they wouldn't have arrived. Did you feel like, um, you know, like acting, something like that? Uh, was that something that you would ever aspire to? And, and how did it go when you were ab able to actually do it? I was in musicals in high school, I think. <laughs> Where it all starts. Sorry, now which yeah. one? You I can't am just drop self admittedly that. not cool ever, but I, I was in Camelot. Uh -huh. I, I was the girl in the green dress that didn't say anything, and I just sang in choir. <laughs> And I was in Hello, Dolly, which I hated. I hated that play. So you'd done, you know, the usual high school acting, right? I mean, because the OA is a really cool show. Yeah. How does that happen? They come to you and say, we need an idiosyncratic, wonderful, brilliant musician because there's not enough actresses? I mean, how does that happen? Uh, honestly, you know, I had no aspirations to act outside of high school. And... I found out that the casting director that had asked me to audition for the show had been at the Nick Cave show when I was supporting him in 2013. It wasn't until two years later that he asked me to audition. It was an honor. And the, the role, the backstory of Rachel in the OA is that she grew up in choir, moved away from home, went to move to pursue music. And on the way, something terrible happened and singing became her superpower. I used to sing in the church choir. I was pretty good. People telling me I should make a go of it, so I took my little brother and we snuck off. 
and I connected not overly literally, but enough where I felt like there were parts of my real life that I could actually draw from real experiences. Mm. And I'm still pretending mm -hmm. <laughs> that I know what I'm doing, but they keep letting me do it, so. Here's Sharon Van Etten with her band performing No One Is Easy To Love, live at Talia Hall on Sound Opinions.
That's Sharon Van Etten performing No One Is Easy To Love at Talia Hall in Chicago. Having a family, too, it sounded like you, you, that really uh, inspired a lot of the music on this record. You know, singing about positive stuff, it sounded like, more so. Although there's still the darkness, obviously. Can be a Sharon Van Etten record without a little bit of that. But were you conscious of that, that you wanted to make a record that was um, focused a little differently? Because one of the things you'd mentioned to me that really stuck with me was that it was so difficult to sing those songs of heartbreak night after night, and you were really getting, you couldn't distance yourself from that music. Are you more able to do that now, now that more positive things are happening in your, in your life? I'm always writing from personal experience, but when I first started writing these songs, they were love songs to my partner. And when I first recorded demo, it's about a 10 minute long meandering, and I just stop and I put it aside for a while, and I revisit it months, maybe years later. And so I had a lot of songs, a lot of demos in that format where the next time I listened to them, I was pregnant. And they took on a whole new meaning. And I would work a little bit on lyrics or try to make the actual f structure of the song shorter or just make more sense and edit it down, and then I would do the same thing. I would put it down and revisit it later. And then some of the songs I would revisit after I had my child and he would be napping and I'd have headphones on listening back and writing lyrics that way. And that was after Trump got elected into office. So all of a sudden there are all these dark undertones and, and fears and insecurities about being a mom but also raising a child in this new political climate Realizing that even within all this darkness, I just wanted to have a positive message because that's also my role as a parent is to make your child feel safe and protected as long as you can. That's a really it, one of the first things about parenting. You always think about what kind of world you're bringing your kid into, and you can hear it in the song. Sharon, it's a different world today than before your sabbatical. So much of the stuff you'd written about this, this toxic masculinity and, and its effect on you, these songs that we're talking about that are difficult, it seems like it's a different day today. Do you feel that? My relationships in the past, they weren't work-related, but... Yes, I felt overpowered by my partner at the time, and I felt like I had no choice other than to be with them. But I think that when you find the right group of people around you to support you, you find the strength to leave eventually. Is that what propelled you into psychology and therapy And when you're 50? <laughs> I mean, is there, I guess what I'm wondering is, if you don't see how sitting with somebody and providing therapy is the same thing you've done on your records, because I think it is. Thank you. I, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> thank you, guys. I think over the years I've learned that 
just the writing process is therapy for me. Mm-hmm. But then sometimes when I'm in my darker days, I, I get mad at myself that what I do is really selfish and that I stand on the stage and I demand everyone's attention and my happiness revolves around how the show went and, and how I, well I performed when I know that's not really what it is. Because on a good day, I look out in the audience and I see people there with me. I see people crying. I see people singing along. I see people making out, which is crazy. <laughs> Go for it. I'm all about that in the workplace, here, wherever. <laughs> but I've seen therapists that have changed my life, that have helped me learn how to communicate when I didn't know how to talk about my feelings, that encouraged me to keep writing and performing because they saw something in me before I did in that it made me feel better and that I had a drive. I didn't, I didn't know why, but I just had a drive to play. It wasn't for success, it was for a connection. And I think as I met fans along the way also that I got worried about some of the fans that would tell me stories about what they had been through and why they connected with my music and I wanted to follow up with them and I would worry about them, that we didn't exchange information for me to check in. And, <laughs> but then just, you know, I mean, that's dangerous. But I, but I realized that there was a drive in me to have more of a connection in a different way. I just need to be certified to do that. <laughs> mm. You open the record with that, you know, uh, statement, you know, I told you everything. You know, sitting at the bar, I told you everything. Sitting at the bar, I told you everything. And, and you have, in a lot of ways. I mean, people, I think, connect with your music so much because they don't feel like you're holding anything back. Obviously, that's a, a real attribute, but at the same time, it leaves you incredibly vulnerable. And the new one still has those same qualities. What do you make of it? Do you, do you feel like, a, you know, at the end of the day, that this, was, this was a good thing? Or do you feel like, in some ways, you know, as we were talking about earlier, getting up on stage and doing that every night and going through that, hell, you know, uh, was, was that worth it? I think I always, sing, whenever I'm singing, I always have tears in the back of my throat. And I think I thrive on that. But I'm also still learning how to write in a way where I can draw from my own experience and write in a general enough way where I know that everyone can relate to it in their own way. And it's a constant balance of sharing myself with people that want to know what I'm doing, but then also know they're not alone. And just learning how to connect with people. I, I am nervous that it's, I mean, I'm vulnerable. I'm, I know like mm-hmm. what, just what I do is vulnerable regardless of how much I sure. share personally. And I, I realize I signed up for that a long time ago. So I just kind of have to own it. Mm-hmm. Here's Sharon Van Etten performing Comeback Kid live at Talia Hall on Sound Opinions.
That's Comeback Kid from Sharon Van Etten live on Sound Opinions. We'll hear more from that performance and talk to Van Etten about how she wound up writing much of her new album on a movie star's synthesizer after a short break. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott. My partner is Jim DeRogatis. Uh, Sharon Van Netten's fifth album, Remind Me Tomorrow, uh, features a bold new sound for her, especially compared to her uh, guitar-based earlier work. This new sound is built heavily around an old analog synthesizer, the Jupiter 4. That's an instrument that uh, wasn't something she sought out. She sort of stumbled into it in a very only-in-New-York kind of way. Let's talk about something fun. So... Uh, <laughs> Two-year-old son and your partner, and I think you have a third love right now, and his name is Jupiter. It's a synthesizer. And I, I had, you know, so everybody's writing about the Jupiter synthesizer, inspiring some of the sonic textures on this record, which are really cool. I mean, it's a new direction for you. It's exciting. Um, and it was Michael Sarah's synth? Is this true? I only saw that, like, one reference to that. How do you borrow Michael Sarah's? You know, 25-year-old analog synthesizer. <laughs> it's so random, but I was just having a summer day in New York, riding around on our bikes with my partner, and we got a coffee, we walked through the park, we see Michael Sarah on a bench, and you know, you just kind of do that thing, he's like, oh yeah, there's Michael Sarah reading a book at the bench, you're like that's cool. You know, New Yorkers <laughs> try to play it cool, like, oh, yeah, I don't care, but there he is, whatever. And, and we finished our coffee, and we got back on our bikes, and we rode to Red Hook, which is a cute little neighborhood, like, right on the water, very fisherman's area. And there's a nice restaurant there. We had a date. And this is before a baby, so we were taking our sweet time. And we went to a restaurant, and we went to get a cocktail after. And... Michael, Sarah sat down right next to us at the bar. <laughs> and previous to all this... He doesn't have the Jupiter 4 synthesizer <laughs> with him, right? Not with Not him. Like under his arm, pinch on in one hand. And... But we had had a couple run-ins before, not in person, but to reconnect in my neighborhood in this way, and he's literally now sitting next to me, I just had to say something. And we get to talk, and he's super nice, and... He talks about how he's been playing piano at his apartment and that he was thinking about getting a space because he felt like it was maybe too much and that it wasn't giving his girlfriend enough time to like have her own space outside of work. And I literally just secured a practice space that week and I was looking for one other person to share it with that would allow me to leave all of my things set up and they could just use whatever I had. And his eyes lit up when I was telling him this. I had a piano, I had a drum kit, I had guitars and stuff. And my only request was that he just let me leave it set up. And he said, can I play the drums? <laughs> and I was laughing hysterically. I said, totally. And so we exchanged numbers. And the next day, he wanted to look at the space. And he moved in his synthesizers in Oregon. And he had a couple guitars. And... We shared the space for a few years together, and I ended up writing a lot on his instruments. <laughs> 
See, I think, I think we have to put that in context. Having grown up in, in Jersey City, Hoboken, having rented rehearsal space in Manhattan, right? <laughs> there's seven bands, there's a schedule. <laughs> you know, you can rehearse from 10 to 12.30, you know, because, I mean, you know and, and I mean, it's hell. How are you a garage band in a city where garage space costs 15 grand a month, <laughs> right? At least Michael Sarah was good for the rent. Oh yeah, he was he was on time every month. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we had we had our days. It was really cute. So like I never really saw him, but we'd leave notes for each other and you know, I we, you know one of us would get something new in there and he'd just give me permission and be like, "Yeah, go ahead, check it out. Totally cool." Like yeah. he'd see if he could like bring a friend by, you know, like he was asking his mom permission <laughs> or something. It's like we're in a basement in Dumbo, you yeah. know, and, and, but it was really fun. And, and he, was, he was really sweet and supportive and, yeah, he inspired me. If, if he ever asked you to write a song with him, would you do it? Well, it's actually funny because he asked me to sing on a song, and I thought I was just singing harmonies on it. Then he asked me to sing unison on it. Then he took out his vocal and used it. <laughs> and <laughs> you got played. Sometimes it's like a plane Passing the golden sun Rains wash away the afterglow Puddles evaporate I guess my serious question about the synthesizer is it would have been so easy to be reductionist. This is Sharon Van Etten's electronic album, right? But it's not. It seems really organic and that you just decided to explore some different texture. And I, I literally just plugged the Jupiter into my pedal board that I would normally plug my guitar into and with nobody watching me to judge me because it's, some people would cringe on that that are purists, but it was really fun to explore it and figure out what it did. I didn't know what mm. it was. He just said, it's really fun. Check it out. And and without having a preconceived notion, I, I found this sound that I really loved. I didn't know how to capture it other than record it. And I just came up with the riff for Jupiter 4 and sang over it immediately so I wouldn't forget it. I haven't been able to recreate that same sound from that demo, but John Congleton came pretty darn close. <laughs> and, and when I played that demo for people, they got really excited about where I was going with my sound. Here's Sharon Van Etten performing Jupiter 4 live at Talia Hall on Sound Opinions.
That's Jupiter 4 from Sharon Van Etten with Charlie Dansky on guitar and keys, Devin Hoff on bass, Jorge Baldi on drums, and Heather Woods Broderick on keys and vocals at Talia Hall in Chicago. You were... Uh... You wrote a song, 17, that uh, I think a lot of people are talking about. It's kind of like the song, you know? It's like the one, wow, this is another level for you. Did you feel like that when you wrote that song, first of all? And, and secondly, you know, that conversation between Sharon Van Etten today and with Sharon Van Etten when she was a teenager. The question that always comes up when I mention that song to people is like, who do you think got the better of that argument? And I said, I don't think it's an argument, but anyway, I, I wish you, you would explain a little bit more about how that song came to be. Yeah, it's definitely not an argument. I used to be free. I used to be 17. But, you know, there are times where you look back at yourself, you want to hug yourself. There's times that you think you know better, I mean, then or now. But at the end of the day, you, you are who you are for all the things that you've been through in your life. And so you have to be at peace with that at some level. So but, it's you now talking to you at 17. Well, there's levels. <laughs> right, okay. So when I first, when I first had the idea, I caught myself walking through a neighborhood where one of the places I used to hang out at was something else suddenly. And I caught myself being that old townie that was bitching about, you know. <laughs> Gentrification. <laughs> Gentrification. I this place yeah. where it was. Yeah. But you know, but I remember when I first moved to New York and a friend of mine was showing me what Williamsburg was about 15 years ago. And that was like the first year I moved there and I remember he was trying to say something like, you know, throughout time, civilizations rise and fall. <laughs> and he like said it in this meditative way where he was telling himself as much as he was telling me. And so every time something like that happens, I, I, I do the same thing. And, you know, even though I'm walking in a neighborhood where younger kids are moving in into a neighborhood I can't afford anymore, that's just the way it is. And so I started writing down my, <laughs> uh, my meditations on life and, and change. And this was also around the time when I was trying to be home and, and learn how to be creative without touring. And I was introduced to this young songwriter, Kate Davis, who was finding her voice. She's a great songwriter. She plays bass. And we were about to have like a writing session together. But they can be very awkward. It's a, like a blind date and everybody hopes that something happens. <laughs> so the day before I wrote her and I just said, hey, I have this rough idea for a song. I recorded it kind of more Lucinda Williams style actually. It was more of a country dirge when it started. And I had very vague verses, but the choruses were pretty much there. As an assignment, why don't you try to think of how you connect with this song, and we'll finish it together. So she came, I had all the instrumentation recorded, we finished the lyrics together, 
and then I made her perform it. And so the, the demo of the song that the producer John Congleton heard was my friend Kate Davis singing it, and that demo version is called Seventeen Kate. And so she's younger than me. She's experiencing New York in this way that I just remember. And like I would get teary-eyed like watching her talk about music. I feel like that was a big part of the narrative beyond my own personal experience with gentrification. It was also kind of looking at what I was while also building this friendship with this songwriter that I admired and I continuing to see grow as an artist in her own right. And, and did you feel like the song was special? It's definitely a song I didn't want to disappear. I mean, I'm used to having songs that I write for myself that I'll never share with anyone. But even when it didn't fit with the, the synth-centric demos that I had had, there was something about that song I couldn't let go of, even though it kind of lived in the country universe for a while. As soon as we decided what the overall sonic palette was going to be for the record, it made me realize that the Bruce Springsteen, Lucy New Williams meets suicide. I was like, there is a common ground there somehow. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have been talking to Sharon Van Etten. The new albums remind me tomorrow. Sharon, thank you for coming on Sound Opinions. Thank you for wanting to talk to me. Now we want to hear from you. How do you feel about music as therapy? Has Michael Sarah ever pulled a fast one on you? Call 888-859-1800 and tell us about it. When we return, we'll review the latest album from Jamila Woods. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott, and that is a little bit of the track Muddy from Legacy. Legacy. Got to say it that way, Greg. It's <laughs> got the exclamation points. The new album by Jamila Woods. We had Jamila as a guest on Sound Opinions back in October 2017. She came up from this vibrant scene in Chicago, uh, part of it being the Young Chicago Authors, literary nonprofit group working with kids, instilling in them the love of poetry. Uh, Music is a big part of her life. That 2016 debut, Heaven, H-E-A-V-N, made a big splash, uh, put her up in the realm of up-and-coming Chicago artists. Now she is back with her second proper 
album. Uh, producers include Odd Couple, uh, a team that's getting a lot of attention from Chicago. Peter Cottontail, a name that's popped up a lot. Contributors like Nico Siegel. We reviewed his latest album not long ago. Uh, what is Jamila Woods giving us on album number two? We'll come back and give our reviews in a minute, but here is a track called Basquiat. That track we bumped in uh, with was uh, Muddy, as in Muddy Waters. Basquiat, as is Basquiat, as in the painter, Jean-Michel Basquiat. Here it is on Sound Opinions, Jamila Woods. They want to see me angry They want to see me bare my teeth, yeah I'm a stovetop baby I smile in your face but the oven's on Basquiat from the new Jamila Woods record, Legacy, Legacy. Yes, the exclamation points. It's like a, a news bulletin, you know, that we're getting here legacy, from legacy. Jamila. Yes. Uh, and, and she's talking as an educator, as a poet. Um, you know, she's basically saying in this record, if we are going to build a future, and she's speaking specifically to women, to the, to the African-American community, uh, we need to learn from our past. We have these role models that have taught us how to declare that I exist. I exist because I create, therefore I, I matter, you know, and it ties in with this whole notion of what this record is about, what Jamila Woods' uh, career has represented so far. Uh, you know, you have this whole idea of artists like Betty Davis, Eartha Kitt, Miles Davis, who at one time was married to Betty Davis, mm-hmm. uh, Muddy Waters, as you mentioned. Uh, you know, we have poets, we have painters, we have musicians uh, who, who provide this idea of creation as a form of resistance. The, you know, the idea of wings comes up a bunch of times in these songs. In, in the song Betty, you know, she says, you insist on clipping my wings. Let me be, I'm trying to fly. You insist on clipping my wings. In the song Sun Ra, she says, my wings are greater than walls, quoting mm-hmm. Sun Ra himself. This whole notion of we can escape uh, this box that people are trying to put us in through our art. And in the same way, musically, Jim, she's an artist who can't be boxed in. What genre is this exactly? You've got trip-hop on here. You've got hip-hop. You've got jazz, R&B, soul. You know, this mix of influences in her music combined with this poetic 
educator's sensibility. Uh, this is another really powerful work from this artist. Yeah, you know, it takes a, a little longer to sink in Legacy, Legacy than her debut, Heaven. Took me two, three listens uh, before I really began to, uh, to fall in love with it. And I also think, I hate to sound like the English professor or the stereotypical rock critic, this is the rare album that would actually benefit from a lyric sheet. Uh, sitting <laughs> yeah, and listening to it uh, with the lights dim and the lyric sheet in front of you, mm-hmm. uh, your substance of choice. Um, because it is a, a panoply of African-American artistic contributions. Um, you know, they really are all over the map, and not just African-American, Latinx. Frida Kahlo gets a great shout-out, one of my favorite tracks on the album. Can we do it like Frida? We could build a bridge, then I could come see you. You seized upon the word wings and the way it means different things in different uh, lyrics in different songs. I'm going to talk about the word bad. At times, Jamila is using bad as in we have to get beyond a bad relationship. This happened to me. It was bad. I'm growing from it. And at other times, like when she's talking about uh, Betty Davis, she's talking bad. (laughs) I want to be a bad woman, and nobody's going to put me down. It's an inspiring record. It's an empowering record, and and it's a fun record. I, I highly recommend it. As often as possible here on Sound Opinions, Greg or I take a trip to the desert island, pop a quarter in the jukebox, and play you a song we cannot live without. Greg, what do you have for us today? Jim, uh, I wanted to uh, riff on something that Sharon Van Etten was talking about in our interview with her, how she used this uh, analog synthesizer, the Roland Jupiter 4, as a key component in her record. In fact, she named a song after that instrument, the one that Michael Cera uh, loaned to her. I told her I had one for a long time. Uh I sold it like an idiot. So this keyboard was basically only made for three years, 78 through 81, Mm -hmm. and then Roland came up with a fancier model that was also a big part of that transition from guitar-based music into uh, this new technology, this new keyboard technology, synthesizers, etc., that became a big component in post-punk and club music right around this era. You saw a lot of commercial music being made with these instruments, but initially this was kind of radical, this whole idea that here is an opportunity to create something fresh, something that didn't sound like anything that came before, and I think this was the era that Sharon Van Etten was pointing to, Mm. this this underground era for this, uh, the Jupiter 4 era of uh, keyboards. You know, one of the bands that I think is uh, very underrated and also overrated is a band Simple Minds out of Scotland. You know, everybody knows them from the Breakfast Club and the arena shows. <laughs> yeah. To me, there's two phases in Simple Minds' career. There's that era where they became super famous and became this kind of bloated arena rock band, which frankly, to me, 
to my ears, wasn't that interesting. And then there's the early Simple Minds. Mm. When you look at those first four, four or so records, really fascinating approach to this new technology, particularly by the keyboardist Mick McNeil, who I think is one of the unsung heroes of, of music. I remember one to, once interviewing him. And he just assumed it was going to be the usual pile of Breakfast Club questions and said, no, no, I want to talk about those early records, Empire and Dance, for example. So, so, he goes, really? You want to talk about that stuff? I, 702 episodes of Sound Opinions, and somehow you have kept your love of deep love. This is deep love. You're blowing my mind of Simple Minds closeted. Yeah, well, here's my Simple Minds homage, because I love this band early on for what they did with those keyboards in particular. Uh, the Empires and Dance record, their, their third album, I think, was, was the high point. And there's a song called 30 Frames a Second in which the Jupiter 4 plays a very prominent role, uh, the melody line. And there's also another synth, uh, the Korg 770, that does those percussion parts in the song. Mm -hmm. So it's really framed around this new, it's paranoid, it's dark, it's, you can dance to it. It's got all (laughs) these cool elements in it that I think made Simple Minds so great back around circa 1980. Simple Minds with 30 frames a second on Sound Opinions. A second by Simple Minds. Greg Cott coming clean as a uh, super fan of that band. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Jim, next week we're going to take a deep dive into the Paisley Underground, which was that Southern California rock psychedelic revival of the 80s that was so important in terms of developing bands like the Bangles and the Dream Syndicate. A scene I love. Download Sound Opinions wherever you get your podcast thingies. Special thanks to Shelley Steffens and the folks at Talia Hall. Sound Opinions is produced, as always, by Brendan Banizak, Alex Claiborne, Iona Contreras, and Andrew Gill. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. Hey, Greg and Jim. My name is Ben. I loved your recent segment about the legitimacy of reunion tours when the original lineup of the band is no longer a part of the tour. Uh, I had this same internal struggle when I went to see the Guns N' Roses reunion tour two years ago, but it was Guns N' Roses, and that tour might not ever happen again, so I couldn't miss it. 
And I have to say that the, the conflict was resolved on stage when Guns N' Roses came out and sounded exactly like Guns N' Roses should. So the, the uh, answer that I walked away with is uh, it depends. It depends on which band members are still there, which ones are missing. If you've got Axl Rose and Slash on stage together, I hate to say it, no offense to the rest of the band, but that's good enough for Guns N' Roses for me. Those two are the critical members of the band. My name is Kyle from Minneapolis. I'm enjoying your discussion on reunion tours. Some that would be great, some not so much. But there was one reunion tour last year that I attended that I'm really happy I did, and that was Todd Rundgren's Utopia. It was the four-piece lineup of Todd Rundgren on vocals and guitar, Kasim Sultan on bass and vocals, Willie Wilcox on drums and vocals. And they had a bit of a snag with one of the keyboarders they were going to bring back on board, Ralph Shuckett. But due to health issues, he had to bow out. So they found a younger keyboarder from Portland named Gil Asias who jumped in. And after 10 days of rehearsing, the material was every bit as skilled as Roger Powell was. So it was a very worthwhile performance. The four of them were tight as a knot. It did not disappoint. Keep up the great work. Bye. Hey, what's up? This is Devin from Seattle. I think the band for me that like I would have to go see if they reunited would be Oasis. There's been so much bad blood between the Gallagher brothers. It seems like the most improbable reunion, yet Oasis, I grew up listening to all of that music, and it just it, it was so meaningful for me during my high school years. And I think if they were to get back together for a reunion, it would be one of the biggest shows maybe I would ever get to see in my lifetime. So I feel like I couldn't miss it. I think that's where I'm at. Thanks. Hi, this is Jeff. I'm calling from Boston. I really love the show. And I'm calling about your reunion show that you had recently. I think my favorite reunion so far has been the Dinosaur Jr. reunion with Lou back in the band. The albums they've put out are as good as anything they originally put out, and they're just incredible. As far as dream reunions, I think the only one that really matters to me at this point is Fugazi. I would do absolutely anything to get them back together. They're all still alive, still playing. They say they even still play together privately for themselves. And I really wish they would get together and tour again. Thank you. No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800.
We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.